so I won't ask for a show of hands, but I did hear from a few of you that said that you um, took my challenge and read through Romans 12 this week. So I hope that it was a, a blessing for you, and I hope that as you repeated that challenge each day, that the text became rich, that it began to uh, speak to you in ways maybe that you haven't uh, had uh, that particular text speaks to you before. So we're moving into Romans 13 this morning, and as you see, the title of the sermon is The Christian Citizen. Now we had uh, founding fathers, we call them. There were 55 of those founding fathers, and except for three of them that were said to be deists, and one of those three has said, it was said that they actually came to Christ before their death. Most of the founding fathers were Christians. They were biblical Christians. Many of them were Calvinists in their thought, in their theology, and they believed that government had limited power, which was manifested by our, constitu our Constitution. But they believed that God had supreme power. I'm not sure that that holds true today with many of our elected officials that they actually believe that God has supreme power over all things, including government, but maybe there are a few. Now, if you do not buy into the revisionist um, history and um, how Many have tried to change a history. Uh, if you do not buy into that, you would buy this statement maybe. Our Constitution, our, the way the government was formed, was formed on biblical principles. Listen to Isaiah 33, 22. And the idea of our three forms of governments that we have, the three branches of government. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. And of course, that verse continues as Isaiah has, he will save us. Our executive branch, the Lord is our king, there is a head, there is something over uh, arching uh, that head of our country was set in the executive branch, the legislative branch was the law-giving, and then our judicial branch was the judge. And interestingly enough, our forefathers were in tune with what could happen if there were not checks and balances, and so two of those branches are elected, and one of those are appointed for life, so that they would not have to buy into, live into, being the political side of an election. And so these two branches of elected and then the one that is appointed formed our government. What is interesting also is that Jeremiah chapter 17 was used that it would restrict, in other words, under law, they knew that sinful man 
was going to have to have some type of control. God gave laws because we were sinful. He gave us laws to live into and be obedient to. And so they knew that there had to be some rule of law informed or instituted. And so we see that the rule of law was handed down within the Constitution and its amendments. What is interesting that less than 30 years after our independence, Congress in 1805 drafted a treaty of peace and anonymity with Tripoli, and it was ratified the following year in 1806. What is interesting about that fact is that Joel Barlow had put into the treaty in its original form that our government was not founded on religious principles. But in 1805, less than 30 years after the, our independence, Congress deleted that clause, that previous statement, so that the understanding was that our nation was founded on religious principles. Now, I could have picked a number of quotes, probably hundreds of quotes that I was looking through, but I just picked a few that I want to just share with you this morning about some of those at the time and what they thought about our government in relationship to religion, or in this case, Christianity. George Washington, our first president, it was impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. John Quincy Adams, quote, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissolvable bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. And then Patrick Henry, and I quote, it could not be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not on religions, listen to what he says, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you uh, keep up with the news and you read much of what is either online or maybe a headline in the newspaper, this past week, the Archbishop of New York, Cardinal uh, Timothy Dolan, uh, had some words to say. And this is what he was asked. Why is our society in trouble? And he answered, simply put, we're in trouble because we as a people have forgotten God. More troubling, we break the first commandment. Now, we're smart enough to know, I think we're smart enough to know that this idea of separation of church and state was not to keep the religion out of government, but to keep the government out of religion. And so when we see the progress of our nation over these years, 200 plus years, we see that some of that erosion has taken place. And we see that the, the, the church and Christianity uh, in some cases, in some places have been marginalized. We gradually see that government has exercised its right within 
what they consider their right within religion within our country. Now, having said all of that, I want you to understand that that Paul is writing this. There is no division between chapter 12 and chapter 13 as Paul is writing his letter. Uh, He's writing a letter, and we have separated separated it with verses and chapters. And so as you read chapter 12 this week, and as I preached on those verses 9 through 21 last week, and we talked about how we, the church, are to act with one another, how do we live within unity and within love with one another, and then how do we live in the world? Verses 14 through 21 were how we as a Christian community, how we as the church are to live in the world. Paul continues that, that mindset. He, he talks about how we're to live in the world, we're to not pay evil for evil. Uh, When possible, we're to live with peace with one another. We're to humble ourselves. We're not to take revenge. We're to help one another. If one is thirsty, we're to give them water, he says. Do not overcome evil with evil, but good. But overcome evil with good. In the very next verse, he leads into this understanding of how we as Christians, how we as believers in Jesus Christ are to live in the world of government. How are we going to do that? If you have your Bibles, I want to read the first seven verses this morning, and then um, I'll jump into the text. And um, my prayer is, is maybe if you have some preconceived ideas or understanding or thoughts about how we as Christians are to live in government, maybe you will hear Paul or hopefully the Holy Spirit this morning. Uh, if, if those ideas aren't congruent with the scripture or how the Holy Spirit is asking you to be this Christian citizen, um, maybe you will hear something this morning uh, that will lead you into thought about that. First seven verses, every person is to be subject or subjection in subjection to the government authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. But for evil, do you want to have do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not be, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is the minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but because also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoted themselves to this very thing. 
Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. I pray, Father, this morning that you would illuminate with your Holy Spirit, your words for us, what you would have us hear through this, your holy word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So my first question is, is government a bad thing? And if we were honest with one another, I think we would say, no, it's not a bad thing. Now, there are those of us that might say, well, I don't like paying taxes, or I don't like how the government puts pork into bills and how they spend the money, and there's certainly, we know that there is waste, but if you are driving out of your driveway onto the roads here in Raleigh, and every other five feet there's a pothole, you're going to be mad that somebody hasn't fixed that. And how do the roads, how does the infrastructure get fixed? It gets fixed, it gets fixed by the, the taxes that are paid. And so there's a responsibility that we have. There are some things that we desire. There are expectations from us when it comes to the government. And our investment is what we hope is used properly. Sometimes it's not always, and we know that. But, as Christians, we know that government has a function. In fact, we see that government, God, Paul says, has set the government into authority. Look at that first verse again. Every person, every person is to be in subjection to the government, governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So, I want to go back. Actually, I want to go back to the beginning. I want to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and read a couple of verses, 26 and 27. Listen to what Moses writes. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God is a God of order. God created us in his image. God created us out of nothing. God is not a God of chaos. He is not. He created us to be in relationship with him and to rule over the earth. And he gave man authority, dominion over the earth. We see that God is not a God of chaos when it comes to the family. The family unit rightly living has 
a head of the household, the man, and the man is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And Christ died for the church. And if we are rightly living as the head of the household, we are sacrificing ourselves for our family. We are living as such that we, in God's image, will live so that not only our spouse, but our children and all that would see us, that it would be a unit of love and care for one another. If the family is rightly worked by God for the way God intended, how perfect it would be. Unfortunately, we mess it up because self comes into play. Pride comes into play. Unrighteousness comes into play. And that begins to pervade over our relationships. But God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order. And as Paul is writing chapter 13, or in our case, chapter 13, as he's writing these words, Paul wants us to remember that God has set this into action, that God is anointing those in authority. He understands what those at that time, the Christians of that time, were going to face and what they were facing when it came to Rome, that there was a power, authority over them, and how their witness would be. How would the Christian witness in the first century make a difference? This passage tells us that God has placed in authority those. He has established the government, placing people in authority, and that we are to be subject or sub, our subjection to them. So our mind begins to wonder, but wait a minute, Marty. What about Stalin? What about Hitler? What about the governments that have done awful things, pervaded with evil? God knows the beginning. God knows the end. God raises nations for good. And God uses nations to protect other nations. And when we have seen nations that have risen to evil power, not only have we seen in many instances those have been defeated, but what we see is, for God's purpose, Christianity flourishes. Do you realize that when persecution, and you say, well, wait a minute, that's, you mean God is allowing this to happen so the word of God can be spread and so that people can come to understand who Jesus Christ is? And the answer to that is actually yes. In the countries that have persecution, we see Christianity flourishing. We see Often those who arise on a Sunday morning that would go in and preach the gospel in places where the gospel is not to be preached, where authorities have had those persecuted, we see 
people coming to Christ over and over again. You see, God is outside of time, and he understands the beginning and the end, and what we don't understand often we puzzle at. We think, what in the world? But God is still in power. God still has the ultimate authority. So if, if God allows the rise of power and we're to be subjected to those in power, what does that look like as a Christian? Well, first off, to be honest with you, we're supposed to be model citizens. I don't know how often we are, but we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be law-abiding, not law-breaking. We're supposed to be obedient, not rebellious. We're supposed to be respectful. Respectful, I'll say that again, respectful, not demeaning to the government. But I want you to hear what I'm saying this morning. That does not mean that we don't, we don't speak out against sin. It doesn't mean that we do not speak out against injustice or immorality or ungodliness. We do. But we have to do it within the framework of the law, within the framework of being righteous, civil, with respect. The church is to act godly in the midst of doing good, living peacefully, even in an ungodly society. You remember those first few verses of chapter 12 that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, and then the next verse, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so by this transformation that God has given us, we're to live into the saving power that God has given us in us so that the world, those around us, the government, whomever in the godless world would clearly see God within us, our passion, our witness, how we act as a church how we act individually in society will either hurt your witness or help your witness. We are called to obey the laws of the land as the scripture calls us to. But when the law of the land goes against God's commands and God's mandate, God's word prevails. God's word prevails. Let me give you some examples of that. If you were to go to Daniel 3, you know the story. Shadmach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they are before Nebuchadnezzar, and he wants them to bow down to the golden image, and if they don't, he's going to kill them. Well, the fiery furnace is there, and they are not going to bow down to him. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar is in power over them, has complete authority over them, and as he commands them to kneel, they will not. And you know the story. They are thrown into the fiery furnace. It's you know, heated up beyond measure, and lo and behold, there's not three in the furnace, but there are four walking around, and as they come out, you can't even smell any fire or singe or any hair that's been burned or anything. You see, 
there was authority over them. But God's authority prevailed. They were not going to kneel before a graven image. And God honored their witness. What about Daniel? Chapter 6, Daniel is not supposed to pray or offer any type of homage or petition to anyone besides King Darius for 30 days. He's turned in. The king is disheartened, but he has to follow through because what? He had a proclamation of the law and he had authority over Daniel, but Daniel was not going to stop what God had called him to do what was right in God's eyes. And so Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, as you know, and he was protected. You see, God honored his witness because he was faithful to God. Peter and John and even Paul, their witness before everyone when their witness that they would share and God was, or Jesus had told them to go and to share this gospel with all that they would meet, all that they would see throughout all the land, but yet they were told by authorities, stop talking, stop preaching, stop telling about this man, Jesus, that you think was raised from the dead. Stop it or we will arrest you, stop it, or we will have you killed. Peter and Paul both were killed, as the other disciples except for John. But God still honored their witness. God still used them to proclaim the good news because they lived into the call of what God had mandated, God had commanded. What about us today? What about us? When there seems to be laws on the book, maybe that are contrary to what God's word was to say to us, how we are to stand or believe what is right in God's eyes, what do we do? Y'all know that, um, or most of you know, I think, that I am uh, against abortion. I am pro-life. And I believe that abortion is killing a human being. And I've made no bones about where I stand on that. And with the Supreme Court's decision back in June, latter part of June, um, by the way, they, they did not make abortion illegal. They just sent it back to the states to deal with. Uh, contrary to what some would say, uh, abortion is still legal within the United States. Um, but my passion for the unborn, it's against the law for me to go bomb a Planned Parenthood clinic or any other abortion clinic. I would be arrested, and rightfully so, because I broke the law. My passion against abortion is to stand within the context of the law. I can verbally express where I stand. I actually could take issue, which I do, with abortion. 
but it's within the confounds of the law. It is wrong, even if God has said it, stand on that, but you can't break the civil law in trying to make your case. That is wrong. And as much as we have heard about this January 6th riot in D.C., it was wrong. They should not have taken the law in their own hands. They had a right to protest. They had a right to say what they felt, but not act in the way that they acted. It was wrong. So we have to be careful. Even though we stand on the word of God, and that is our mandate, and God's word prevails, we have to do it within the confines of the law. So there are good laws for our benefit and our protection. In fact, in this, these verses, Paul reminds us that there are laws and rulers in place that if we have good behavior, then we don't have to fear. Uh, if we are evil, then there's going to be a type of wrath that's going to come on us. In fact, there are many, and I'm one of those that believe that what is said here is a case for capital punishment. Now, we can talk about that in Sunday school if you want, and I'll give you my reasons why. But we know that there are, the government looks at us and looks at the law, and when laws are broken, uh, there's going to be consequences for those actions. If you don't want to see a blue light in your rearview mirror, then don't speed. It's pretty simple. So, if we're to live into the laws that we have, but we're standing on the principle of Scripture and living into our call as a Christian, then how can I make a difference in this elected government that we have within our framework here in the United States? And I will tell you, you need to do your homework. I do my homework. Terry will tell you that before every election, I do my homework. I look at who the candidates are. I know that I'm only one vote, but I am a vote, and this particular passage says, for your conscious sake, make sure that you do the right thing for your conscious sake. For my conscious, I have to do my homework. I have to look at those officials, those that are running for office, to look where they stand. What do they stand for? What are they saying? What, are, what is their platform? And I do it for the judges, too. I've had people tell me, oh, I do all these other things, but I don't care about the judges. Well, wait a minute. These judges are making and affirming or rejecting laws. You've got to look at the whole gamut of who you are voting for. And I will tell you, for example, I am pro-life. And if there is a candidate that is pro-choice, I won't vote for that candidate. Get this. If all the candidates are pro-choice, 
I won't vote for any of them. I will skip that block and go to the next because I am not going to vote knowingly for someone that supports abortion. I'm telling you my, what I do, but I'm telling you that you need to do your homework if you want to make a difference. And as we as a Christian community, as we as Christians within America begin to do our homework, we can make a difference with the vote. So the final question is what Paul begins to address at the end of this pericope, this, these verses, and it's in chapter or verses 6 and 7. And he asked the question of basically, what do we owe? What, what about government? What, did, what do we owe government? And he, and he talks about taxes. And as we think about taxes and what we owe, at least my mind, I don't know about yours, went to Mark 12. And Jesus is presented with a, uh, a dilemma. And, um, and he does a very good job, as he always does, in answering the question that is asked him. So... This is where Jesus says, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's, the things of Caesar, and then render unto God the things that are God's. And we often read that, and in the context, we forget uh, the whole context of this passage. Jesus is asked a question of what this payment, who, who this payment, do, do you pay taxes to the government? And, and he didn't say hey, let's grab lunch, and then I'm going to do a seminar on economics and political statutes. He, he never said that. What he did was, because it was this public setting and because it had political consequences on how he would answer the question, he said, why don't you just hand me a coin? And they handed him a coin. A coin has two sides, of we know. And there's an image of Caesar on the coin. And he says, hey, look, there's a metal coin here, and there's an image on this coin, and whose image is it? It's Caesar's. Evidently, Caesar likes his picture. He likes uh, for you to give his picture back to him. So you render under Caesar's what is Caesar. This belongs to Caesar. But he didn't stop there. He said, render under God to God what is God's. In other words, Pay your taxes. Paul tells us to pay our taxes, to, to honor those, uh, the custom, uh, to fear and to honor those. He says, whatever, render whatever is due them. Just as an aside, did, did you know that Scripture commands you to pay whatever you owe? So if, if you take out a loan and you try to cheat your way through that loan, you're going against the word of God. So Paul says, pay the tax. What we need to see is that Jesus didn't stop there. We, we look over that other piece. We, we look over, um, but unto God give the things that are God's. And see, what I would do is tell you this. Yes, on that coin, there's an image of, of Caesar. But on me and you, you, do you remember 
Genesis 1.26. Oh, me and you, we have the image of God. We're created in the image of God. And Jesus says, render under God all things that are his. And guess what? All things are his. All things. Yeah, pay your taxes. But everything that we have, everything we are, everything is God's. This is the obedience to God, the celebration and worship to God. This is the reception of God's redemption. This is the recognition of Jesus as Messiah. This is the response of the gospel in faith in repentance of our sin. This is obedience to the command of the word of God, living our life so that God and his witness is seen through us. We are to surrender to him as Lord, be subjective to his commands and his word. This, these are the things of God. This twin commandment, render under Caesar, render under God, we cannot forget the render under God. And when we are under God's authority and when we understand that as we live this right Christian citizenship before the Lord and before others, we may not please our neighbor, we may not please our coworker or our cubicle mate uh, at work, we may not please our parents or our children, we may not even please our pew buddy by our submitting to God's way in his word. But I will tell you this, you will please God. When we are rightly living for God, his authority is over us. Submitting to the authority over you is right. It is rightly. But in all things, we are called to submit to God. And when we live that way, others will see our witness in our society. And believe it or not, I believe that God will use us to make a difference as we live out our Christianity and as others see our witness. As he did with others, he will honor that choice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this scripture that reminds us that we are living in a ordered society and that we can make a difference by the way we live in it. Um, there is certainly uh, ungodliness. There are those nations that um, uh, do not operate rightly in your eyes. Uh, and Father, we've just got to believe that you are and know that you are in control of all things and there's a reason and purpose for all things. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to use us uh, in our witness. Uh, may, Father, we uh, stand on your word and your command for all things. But, Father, may we do it in a righteous way. We do not want to hurt our witness for you. But we want others to see who you are living in us as we walk daily. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much for who you are and what you've done, and especially, Father, for your word as you teach us 
to walk righteously before you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.